If you have a copy of God's Word, would you open it with me or maybe grab a Bible in the pew in front of you and turn to the book of Psalms, number 17. Toward the end of this month, we are going to begin a new sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians, but I'm still preparing for that. And anytime we're in between sermon series, I generally try to pick up a psalm. And I try to do this in order, not just at random, but over the life of our church at various times between sermon series. I've preached beginning with Psalm 1 and kind of picked up from there. And so I've preached through the first 16 psalms, which leaves 17 as a natural consequence and choice for this morning. So that's where we're picking up. Psalm 17, continuing to preach through the Psalms in order. Certainly my goal, if the Lord grants me a long ministry in many days, to preach through all the Psalms in the history of our church. But right now, this is where we're at. Psalm 17. (coughs) Brethren, this is God's Word. Let's give our attention to hearing it. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. And you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me. O God, incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Amen. This is God's Word. Bow with me again. Let's ask God's blessing upon our time of preaching. Our Father, we pray, Lord, that You would hear us. Just as David cried, that You would hear us this morning. That You would incline Your ear to us. And we ask, Father, that You would visit us in the Holy Spirit. Lord, and bring conviction, bring knowledge. We pray that Your Word would come to us this morning and and be life-changing in many respects. 
That you would feed us, that you would grow us, that you would give us a greater and grander sight of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads us into a deeper and deeper and more fervent love for Him, for you and your Word, and and for our neighbor as well. Lord, we pray that you would answer and visit us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. The first thing that should stand out and strike us when we come to this psalm is immediately we should hear the utter pain and desperation in David's voice. Did you notice that he doesn't begin this prayer with any introduction or opening salutations or adorations of praise? And David doesn't begin by speaking about what God has done or who God is. He doesn't begin with anything even resembling our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He just cries out three emphatic, urgent requests. Back to back to back here in verse one. Hear my cause, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer. Of course, the book of Psalms, we know, the book of Psalms is given to us as the prayer guide for the church. It teaches us how to pray. It's also the hymn book of the church. It teaches us how we ought to sing as well. And brethren, I think we should find great comfort in knowing this when we come to a psalm like this. Because there is a time for joy and happiness and praise and adoration. There is a time to burst out in song. There is a time to carefully frame our words, to carefully frame our prayers, to couch our requests in doxological praise, to extol God with beautiful language, poetic language, theological language. But there's also a time when matters are so serious, so painful, so hopeless, that all we can do is cry out, groan, and weep. And just say, Lord... Here, do something. We need to know that these types of prayers, these simple prayers of desperation, prayers that you know actually say very little with words, these prayers are no less beautiful, no less eloquent in the ears of our God. But what are these prayers? But like a little child's cry to his father. They express nothing but our utter dependence upon Him and they cut right to the Father's heart. Think about this just in relation to what a cry is. Attend to my cry. David is crying. What is a cry? A cry is instinctive. A cry is reactionary. A cry is something that is really most natural to us as human beings. It's the first thing an infant does when it comes out of the womb. It's the first thing we do instantaneously just as a reactionary response to pain even before we know the cause of that pain or the remedy to that pain. It might even be said that a cry or a cry in the form of a groan is often the last exclamation we make at death. There are no syllables to a cry. There are no words or sentences formed in a cry. There's no eloquence or beauty to a cry. But nothing moves the heart 
of a father quicker than hearing the simple and desperate cry of their child. Here we don't really know the circumstances of David's situation. All we know that he's in, is that he's in pain. We can piece things together and see that he's being slandered. His character is being attacked. He thinks that his life is in jeopardy, that maybe death is immediately on the horizon. And that's why all he can do really is cry out in desperation. But brethren, all of this is to serve for our hope and encouragement to, today. That's why this psalm is here. That's why psalms like this are here. Because haven't we all gone through times like this? Times of tremendous fear and anxiety and sorrow and desperation? Haven't we felt desperate? Really desperate at times? Don't we go through times where we feel like our character is forever ruined? Maybe? As if there is no hope? As if God is apparently absent? And aren't these things, this type of sorrow and depression and despair and helplessness, aren't these often the most difficult burdens to bear in life? And brethren, that's why this psalm is for you. That's why this psalm is here. This psalm is to show us how to pray in times like this. This psalm is here to show us the way through times like this. How to persevere. How to endure. How to make it through debilitating sorrows. But of course, what's fascinating about this is that the psalm and the Scriptures showing us the way through these miseries, it's not showing us, well, here you just need to identify with David and you need to be like David and you put yourselves in his shoes. Because, I mean, in some respect, maybe you can't identify with David here. I don't know. I assume most of us have. I'm certainly, I certainly would say you will at one point, but maybe you've never been brought to the point of utter desperation. Maybe you've never been in this type of pain. Maybe you've never crumbled to the floor, right? And all, where all you can do is just cry out to God with no words. Well, that really doesn't matter if you can identify with David or not because the, the psalm showing us the way through these miseries does so not so that we put ourselves in David's shoes, but rather because this psalm shows us the prayers, the sufferings, and the perspective of the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a psalm that displays and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we find the way of perseverance and endurance through times of difficulty and sorrow. And that's, brethren, what I want you to see from this psalm today. So to open this up, I want to kind of uh, frame our study of this psalm around three of David's positions. uh, Excuse me, petitions. Three requests that he makes. In times of tremendous sorrow and desperation, how do we find encouragement and hope? First, we pray, Lord, hear my cry and incline your ear. Hear my cry and incline your ear. That's what David prays here in verses 1 through 6. I mentioned before that we don't know exactly what David is going through here. 
All we know is that his character is under attack. He feels his life is in danger. Of course, there might be many times that the saints of God experience this as well. If you've ever had your character attacked, if you've ever been falsely accused, if someone has ever spread lies about you or put a target on your back, you know how this feels. You know how utterly painful and helpless this may be. But I want you to notice how David responds. Notice how he responds by beginning, uh, he begins by focusing on himself. He starts with himself. He doesn't start by lashing out at his enemies. He starts in a sense by, by taking the log out of his own eye or making sure that the log is out of his own eye before he then turns his focus to others. He mentions in verse 1 that my prayer is offered from lips free of deceit. His prayer is sincere. It's honest. He's not double-minded. He's not hypocritical. He's not just praying for something that he selfishly wants. He's not just trying to uphold a veneer of self-righteousness. There's no contradiction uh, between his tongue and his heart saying one thing but believing another. Instead, he says in verse 2, Lord, you can see. Let your eyes behold what is right. If you will just look at my situation, you will see the right. You will see that these accusations are false. That these attacks from my enemies are without warrant. He then follows this up in verse 3 by speaking of how God had tested him and found nothing. This phrase here, You have visited me by night. It likely refers to the dark hours of the night when no one else is around. Where no one else is peering in on David. Where David poured out his heart in prayer and worship and introspection and confession. And what he's saying is that, Lord, when no one else is looking, I'm still the same guy. The the, The worship of you when no one else is around, is the evidence of my integrity. It's there that that you have tested me by your word. It is there where you have seen who I am. So David says, that's why you'll find nothing. What a precious thing it is, brethren, to have a clean conscience. It's one of the most precious Valuable things in this life. Labor to have a clean conscience before the Lord. Of course we know David doesn't mean that he's perfect or that he's sinless. He's just saying, Lord, in this situation I'm innocent. I'm not experiencing this trouble because of my sin. I haven't brought this on myself. These charges and these attacks are unwarranted. But he continues to focus on himself. And then he ups the ante a little bit towards the end of verse 3 down through verse 5. I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Think about this. What are we tempted to do when we are attacked and slandered and people come after us unjustly? And they say things about us that aren't true. What are we tempted to do? To defend ourselves. To lash out at those who oppose us. To express express our outrage. To make sure everybody knows, right? How wrong they are and how right that I am. David doesn't do this. 
He takes his concerns to the Lord. He asks the Lord to defend his cause. Clearly, he's tempted in some respect to to verbally counterattack his enemies. But he says, I have purposed not to sin with my words. I'm going to rest my case with you. He continues then, and he says that he's avoided the ways of the violent. Verse 4, he is a man bent on revenge. He says, my steps have held fast to your paths. Verse 5, this actually invokes Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of like the opening introduction of the, of the Psalter, and, and every psalm relates to Psalm 1 and 2 in, in some respect. But remember, Psalm 1 talks about the two paths, right? There's the, the path of sinners that the psalmist says, I have not gone and walked in that path. Instead, I've delighted myself in the law of the Lord. And that's what David is say, saying here. He's saying, I have stuck held fast to your word and to your path and my feet have not slipped. Basically, he's saying, Lord, I've been faithful to the covenant. And on the basis of that, will you be faithful to your end of the bargain, your end of the covenant, and answer me, verse 6. Incline your ear and hear my words. So brethren, as as we think about this, again, isn't it true that in times of sorrow, in times of trial, and in times when we are being attacked unjustly, aren't those the times when we are most vulnerable to sin and most tempted to sin, especially with our words? Well, Think then how David can say this. How David can can say and hold fast to his to God's paths and not slip. How is this possible? Well, do you see what he says? He was regular in worship, including the private worship and introspection by night. He endeavored, he purposed, he proactively planned not to transgress. He didn't just like wait and react in the moment. If you're to conquer temptation, if you're to endure temptation, you have to plan ahead. He held fast to God's paths, the ways and commandments of the Lord. He avoided the ways of the violent, excuse me, uh, in verse 4, and regard to the works of man. So how did he do so? By the word of your lips, the word of God. So God's worship, God's word, God's guidance in life, that's how David was able to stay faithful. By clinging to the good. And brethren, that's how we endure as well. That's how we persevere through difficulties and trials and sorrows. Of course, we may not always be able to pray, Lord, I'm innocent in this matter, because sometimes we do uh, bring suffering and sorrows upon ourselves. Sometimes we do experience um, or deserve what we are experiencing. Now, brethren, that doesn't mean we don't pray. And that doesn't mean that we can't pray like this either. Right? We don't relate to the Lord on the basis of the law. We can always plead the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His feet never slip. 
He held fast to God's past. He was innocent in every respect. And His righteousness is ours as a gift to us received and enjoyed by faith. But not only this, because of that righteousness, we've been brought into a relationship with God where He is our Father. He doesn't relate to us as a judge. What kind of father helps and defends and rescues his children only when they perfectly deserve it or have earned it? That's not a very loving father. And it's a dishonor if you treat the Lord and your relationship with the Lord that way. It dishonors Him. Brethren, hear me when I say God will listen to your prayers when you cry to Him in faith. Not because, well, we can look at this psalm and see that He answered David, so I know that He'll answer me. And not because, well, I've kept myself innocent, I've clinged to His Word, and there's, you know, uh, so in some respect, He's going to be fair with me. No, God listens to you because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this psalm is His prayer and His life which He lived and prayed for you, and as your covenant head, He took upon Himself all the obedience that God requires. So that now we can say what? Abba, Father. Lord, hear my prayer. Lord, incline your ear. Answer me in times of sorrow. But secondly, the second petition that helped us through this, to help us endure through times of difficulty, is Lord, show your faithfulness And keep your servant. Show your faithfulness and keep your servant. We find this in verses 7 through 12. Again, notice that David continues to focus on himself rather than just on his enemies and what they deserve. And he's going to get around to his enemies um, down in verse 9. But his primary focus is that he knows he needs the Lord to be with him. He has held fast to God's paths. He has, uh, his feet have not slipped. But it's interesting though, he still calls upon the Lord to, to show him and to keep him. He knows that this doesn't just depend upon him. Right? We know this, Jude 24. God, the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. This is what he prays for here in verses 7 and 8. In the face of enemies all around him, and the temptation to sin, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> maybe he feels the inclination to give up in despair. He cries out in verse 7 Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. The word steadfast love is the famous word. Famous Hebrew word, hesed, refers to God's covenantal faithfulness. God's steadfast love is God's commitment that He's made in covenant to keep and to guard and to love His people. So David essentially is calling on God to be faithful to the promises that He's already made. Brethren, no prayer. No prayer prevails upon our God more than when we pray His promises back to Him. That's what David shows us here. 
But David says, wondrously show your covenantal love. And think about this language. It's almost as if he's saying, Lord, okay, I know your steadfast love. I've read it. I've heard of it. But I need you to manifest it. It's no longer a thing of amazement to me or wonder. I know your faithfulness has always been there. I know your faithfulness is there. But like the sun on a cloudy day, sometimes I can't see it. Show it then to my mind. Show it to my heart. Show it to my faith. Show it to my experience. Make it beautiful to me again. Make it an enchanting reality of my moment by moment living. Brothers, this strike home to us. You know, how often is it that we know God's love and truth? Right? We're not like the heathen who would deny it. But how often does it fail to produce wonder in us? It fails to excite our souls. It, it fails to amaze us. It becomes a, an ordinary thing, a common thing, maybe even a boring thing. Well, David feels that too, and, and that's what he prays. And, and when you find yourself in that situation, that's what you ought to pray as well. We, we fall into the, the, the seasons like this from time to time. We know God's love, but it's just not all that special to us. David feels his need to be amazed at God's goodness. And he knows that that amazement, that wonder, is a key for him to persevere through times of difficulty. And the same is true for you and me as well. Your heart is in a dangerous place when it fails to be amazed and wonder at the love and mercy and faithfulness of God. He then continues, Lord... Keep me as the apple of your eye, in verse 8. The apple of the eye refers to the pupil. The center portion of our eyes. And so saying, keep me as the apple of your eye, is kind of a, a metaphor. It's asking for protection. Protect me like the eye is protected. If you think about the eye, it's, it's an incredibly vital organ. And it just sits on the outside of our body. It's in a very vulnerable place, and it doesn't take much to ruin an eye, right? But if you look at you know, the frame of the human body, it's surrounded by bone in the eye socket. Um, we have eyebrows and eyelashes and tear ducts that, to help keep and guard it from, from dust and from foreign objects. We have the, the lightning-quick reaction of the, of the blink, blinking of the eyelid. That's what David is appealing to here. He's saying, I'm in this vulnerable place and I'm, I know I'm not expecting you to remove me from this place of danger. But when the enemies come and they poke and they attack, guard and keep me. Show the protective love for me just like the body shows the protect, protection concern, and concern for the eye. He follows this up with 
hide me in the shadow of your wings. This is the imagery of the mother bird. Shielding her young. Keeping them warm. Giving them shelter. Hiding them from those who wish to devour. What's interesting about this is that these two phrases appear together in Exodus chapter 15, which is the song of Moses. David knows Scripture, right? By your word, I've kept my path, I've I've kept to your path. And so he, he invokes that and he's saying, Lord, bring about a new Exodus in a sense. Deliver your people again like you have before. And God, this is urgent, he prays, because um, uh, there are threats and dangers all around me. That's how he ends in verse 9. Continues, keep me as the apple, hide me in the shadow. Why? Because the wicked who do me violence and deadly enemies surround me. Here, David begins to speak about the wicked, but he talks about them in in beast-like terms. They're beastly. They seek to do violence. They are deadly. They seek after death. Verse 9. They close their hearts to pity. Uh, Verse 10. They are callous. They are beast-like. They speak arrogantly with their mouths. Uh, No fear of God. Verse 10. (coughs) They've surrounded our steps and set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He considers himself in the company of the righteous. He uses the word us here. He prays in a corporate manner. And he says, these enemies are not just after me. They're after all the people of God. Um, And it's like that we are surrounded here. Like a besieged city. And like a hunter seeking its prey. They're watching every step. and, And they seek to pounce at right, just the right moment to cast the righteous to the ground. So it's because of of this danger that David feels this, this evil lurking in the shadows and he needs then the Lord to show him his love and to faithfully keep and guard and protect him. And there's, brother, so many lessons for us in this. You know, the Lord often will leave us in in places of danger rather than removing it from us. But He's promised to provide us the grace and protection to help us to faithfully endure it. Oftentimes we are surrounded by many deadly enemies. I mean, if you just think about it, every day, every one of us is assaulted with things that can easily destroy our soul. Lies, deceptions, lusts of this world, temptations, things that pull us away from The truth of God. Satan himself prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What do we do in times like this? We pray, Lord, amaze me with your love. Keep me from stumbling. And that's why we devote one day a week to the worship of God. That's why our worship is intentionally Christ-centered, centered on Him, Christ and Him crucified. That's why we fill our prayers with God's promises, calling upon us to do what He's promised to do in the covenant of grace. 
It's because we feel our need to see and be amazed by the love and the wonder and the faithfulness of God. And yet again, brethren, remember, the reason we can pray and pursue these things, the reason we have hope that God will answer us like He answered David is because these are things that Christ secured for us and promises to us in the Gospel. Isn't it true that God has demonstrated and manifested and wondrously shown His steadfast love to us in giving up His own Son? This ought to bring us to our knees in in amazement. And we are in a dangerous position if the Gospel ever comes to us a common thing. If church and worship becomes to us a common thing. Something is deeply wrong with us if we fail to get excited in our soul at the goodness and greatness of God in the Gospel. That's what provides us the hope and the encouragement to persevere when life gets difficult. That's how we prepare beforehand to enter that season of difficulty, even if we're not in it right now. And that's how when we see the love of God for us in Christ, we know and we are assured that if He didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously give us all things? So we pray, Lord, hear my cry and incline your ear and show your love and keep your servant. And thirdly and finally, we pray, deliver my soul and satisfy my deepest longings. Deliver my soul and satisfy my deepest longings. We find this in verses 13 through 15. Note that David isn't quite done describing the wicked yet. He calls upon God to arise and answer him regarding the wicked. But note, it's almost as if, as he starts to think about the coming judgment of the wicked, he kind of has an epiphany of sorts. It's almost as if he finally sees the bigger picture here. First, notice, um, Based upon the beast-like wickedness of his enemies, he calls upon the Lord to confront them in verse 13. He knows they deserve judgment. He knows that God will be faithful to punish all evildoers. And so he knows, just Lord, all you have to do is arise. All you have to do is confront them. All you got to do is show up for the battle. The Lord, all he has to do is stand up from his throne and... The Lord, the sword of the Lord, will deliver David, not the sword of man. I do think it's interesting that he says here in verse 13, deliver my soul from the wicked. Isn't it noteworthy? He doesn't say, you know, deliver my life or deliver my body. Certainly that's in view in some respect. He certainly prays that in other prayers. But it does seem to be that David... David understands that the attacks of the wicked are doing more to him internally than externally. And isn't that often the case? Isn't some of the worst part of difficulty in life the things that go on inside of us? 
the fear, the sorrows, the internal pain, the anxieties, the depression. David feels that his soul is on the edge of despair. It's his soul that's being tormented. And he knows that if it's his soul, then no human can help. And that's why it says, Lord, it's... I don't need this person or these circumstances removed. That's really not the root issue here. I need you to keep me in the faith. I need you to protect my soul. It's kind of like Jesus when He prayed for Peter. and told him, hey, you know, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. What did Jesus pray for Peter? That the Lord would keep Peter from Satan's attacks? No, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. That's what David is praying for here. But then we get the climax in verse 14 and 15. In viewing the wicked, calling God to arise, David finally sees the bigger picture and he sees this bigger picture and he sees this is where my greatest hope is found it's almost as if he looks upon earth and the judgment upon the wicked and this lifts his eyes then to heaven what he sees is that the wicked enjoy many good things in life he sees that god often delays judgment upon them he sees that They enjoy these things by the hand of the Lord. Men, by your hand. By your hand, you fill them with treasure. They are satisfied. He sees that the wicked, in a a real sense, enjoy a measure of satisfaction in this life because of the good things of God. God fills their womb with treasure. This could refer to the blessing of children. It could also be taken metaphorically in the sense that the Lord fills their belly. They are fat and prosperous in this life. Like the rich man in the Lazarus story from Luke 16 we read earlier. They even have enough to leave their inheritance, the abundance to their children and their children's children. God's given the wicked a lasting legacy. But the key, the the crux of the matter, is that the wicked are satisfied with this. We don't have to deny that, that sin brings pleasure. We don't have to deny that in some respect, riches and prosperity in this life can give a measure of happiness. But but that's just the thing. It's all limited to this life, isn't it? Verse 14, they are men of the world. They are worldly men. They are those in love with the world. These aren't men of the world to come. These aren't citizens of the age to come. This world, this life, time, and everything in this life encompass all of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of their aspirations, and all of their happiness. Brethren, this satisfaction is, might be real, but this satisfaction is always temporary. Eventually, it all comes to an end. So while David tries to make sense for why God hasn't struck the wicked right here and right now, he finally sees the temporary nature of life and this world's pleasure. 
And that's when His glorious, eternal, heavenly inheritance comes into brighter focus. And this is what enables Him to end this psalm with confidence and with joy. Yes, the wicked may enjoy God's gifts in this life, but that is all they can ever hope for. God, in many respects, we read from Luke 16, Lazarus was fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Well, you should know as well that riches in this life and prosperity, even big families and lasting inheritance, those are crumbs that fall from our Heavenly Father's table that the wicked scoop up and enjoy. They're not lasting. So David says, as for me, I'm going to make a clear contrast here. As for me, in contrast to an inheritance of this life, in contrast to having all my thoughts and concerns and dreams and hopes and fears bound to this world, in contrast, as for me, there's nothing for me to envy here. Because me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I will see God. I will enjoy that vision of God that far outweighs anything in this life. I will enjoy that beatific vision, the greatest and highest good that could be bestowed upon any creature is to see the face of God. And when will this come? When I awake. This is a reference to the resurrection. Not in this life. Not as those who look for here and now in this world. But when I awake, when all of my pain is but a dream, when my real inheritance will come. And and in this respect, what is the worst that man can do to David? If they kill him, he awakes in the presence of God. David says, this is my satisfaction. To be satisfied. What does it mean? It means to be filled to the brim. It means to be Filled and complete in every part. Saying, my joy, my longings, my fulfillment, my happiness, everything that my soul could ever want will be given to me in full measure. All of my longings, all of my sorrows and fears and tears will be gone. My hope is not in this life. My hope is in the satisfaction of the world to come. My hope is in the deliverance of the world to come. And this inheritance is infinitely better than anything this life can offer. And brethren, as we draw this to a conclusion today, don't miss the fact this last statement here brings it all together. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You see, there's a parallel. I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied in your likeness. The implication is, what is God's likeness? It is righteousness. And why this is important is because if you go back to verse 1 of the psalm, he begins with, hear a just cause, O Lord. Just is the same word for righteousness. It's the same word in Hebrew. Righteousness then bookends the psalm. It is the theme of the psalm. 
And it helps us then put it all together. The essence of David's prayer is God is hope, is his hope in God's righteousness. God's righteousness and vindication here in this life, and God's righteousness and vindication in death as well. And since he prays, Lord, confront them, the wicked, with your righteousness. But when I am confronted by you, I know that I will be made into your righteousness. But brethren, how is this possible? Only when we look at the psalm through the lens of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Again, in conclusion, I'm wrapping up here. Have you ever... It's natural for us to put ourselves in David's shoes when we read this psalm. But have you ever put yourself in the other shoes? Have you ever flipped this where you're not in the position of suffering, but maybe you're on the attack and you're not the victim, but the aggressor? Have you ever slandered someone? Have you ever spoken evil about someone? Have you ever been violent to someone physically or verbally? Have you ever spoken arrogantly? against someone? What about the person you've sinned against? What if they're praying this prayer against you? In fact, we don't even have to imagine. We can just think about David. What do we know about David's life? Right? He intentionally entered entered into temptation by going out to where he knew he could see women bathing. And he took another man's wife in his lust. And when she got pregnant, he schemed and surrounded his enemy and violently ensured his death. He murdered him. Can it be said that Uriah, Bathsheba's dead husband, should be the one praying this prayer against David? Against the wicked David who so arrogantly and beastly and violently destroyed his life and his home and his marriage? This is where righteousness comes into play. David hopes in the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God can only come through a divine substitute. A righteousness that comes from God as a gift to us. This is how and why this psalm can only speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the innocent one. He is the one who was tested by God and found to be without sin. Who clung Closely to God's word and stayed faithfully on God's path. He is the one who is attacked and slandered and pursued by the wicked. He is the one whom the Father said, My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, kept as the apple of His eye. He is the one who cried to the Father and the Father heard Him. He is the one who awoke in the resurrection. He is the one who is the perfect image of God, the likeness of God, the righteousness of God. And that's the beauty of this psalm. The beauty and and the mystery of this psalm is that Jesus is not just the one who prayed this prayer like David, but He's also the one who suffered the judgment and punishment of this psalm that we deserve that we might be clothed in righteousness. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we can pray these things. That's why we can say, Lord, Hear and listen because we have access through Him to the throne of grace. Lord, show Your love and keep us because He, like the Good Shepherd, will keep us to that last day. And that's why we can say, Lord, 
the righteousness of God imputed to us, we know is ours, and when we awake, we will be made and satisfied into his, in His righteous image. And brethren, that is the hope and encouragement that this psalm provides us. That is the key to enduring faithfully through times of difficulty and great sorrow. To run to the Lord Jesus Christ through this psalm. To pray these things and to hope in these things in light of the fact that He is both the speaker and the one who fulfills everything written herein. Brethren, what what will it be for you today? Is your heart going to pursue... And seek satisfaction in the things of this world which will only last for a few decades at most? Or will you pursue that which can never be taken away? An inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you, but will not be revealed until the last hour. David persevered through looking forward to that future inheritance at the last day. The Lord Jesus Christ persevered because of the joy that was set before Him. And we too persevere by clinging to Christ as our substitute and looking for that total satisfaction that awaits us in the age to come. May God give us the faith and the grace to believe and receive these things this morning. Amen. Let's pray.